turn your Bibles, if you have them, to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have one, we gave a handout, and everything that we're going to be looking at tonight is on the little handout in the middle, and a place for you to take some notes or write some questions. We've been studying through uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians, and it has a lot of things that are really, everything is relevant for today. Uh, but it's, it certainly has become apparent through the years that what we're talking about as we go through the book of Galatians is really difficult for people to wrap their minds around. And a big part of that is because of the assumptions that we carry with us about who God is, how God works, what He's expecting from us. And uh, a lot of people just have the sense that we, a relationship with God is really mainly about what we do for God. And what we're reading as we go through the book of Galatians is that it's not. It's mainly about trusting God for what He says He's done for us. And that's a huge difference in the way that people approach things. I was teaching several years ago at a conference, and at the end I allowed people to ask some questions, and a person was hearing what I was saying, and he said, let me ask, well, he said, wait a second, wait a second. Don't you have to do something, right? You have to either, you have to make promises to God about trying to do better, or you've got to be sincere. There's something you have to do. And I said, other than believe that God has done it, no, in order to have a relationship with Him, in order to enter into this initially. And he said, well, no, no, don't you have to do such and such? You, you have to do this and this and you have to do this. Don't you have to do something? And the answer that Galatians is giving is no. It really is by believing that God is who he says he is as we go through the Bible. And so tonight is not really any different. It's the same passage we looked at last week, but we're going to look at a different emphasis this week. And the way that we live this out uh, on the horizontal level with other people, because that's what Paul is addressing, and he's talking about what we call the gospel in order to address that theme. So Galatians chapter 2, and we'll start again with verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, the men from James, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisies so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified, declared righteous in God's sight, by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Okay, let's pray, and we're going to ask God to help us to understand what's going on in this passage and how it relates to our lives. So let me pray for us. There's a, there's a plea, Father, and you've heard it through the centuries. And that plea from your people is, I believe, help my unbelief. Because there are places where we come up against uh, what your word says and find ourselves unable to actually do it or to believe it, to accept it, and to live according to it. And so we pray tonight that you would help us to grasp what this passage is saying, 
to bring it into our lives and to be really transformed and changed by it. Lord, would you meet with us and would you be pleased to bless us? And Lord, I pray that you would bless me uh, because I am I'm not the expert in residence. I am somebody who is just as needy as anybody else in this room to hear what you have to say in this passage. I pray that you would not only allow me to listen to you, but as I'm speaking, that your voice would be the voice that is heard and not mine. Would you bless us? Would you bless our time, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. We love family vacation at the Speaks House. Uh, Every summer we go to Edisto Island and spend some time, uh, spend a week there with cousins. All my uh, all my siblings are there, all of our nieces and nephews are there, and I stay with my family, with my sister and her husband and their three kids who are around the same age as our kids. And one of the traditions when I was growing up going to Edisto Island was going ghost busting. And uh, because Edisto has some really fun ghost stories, I don't believe in ghosts, so we can, you know, don't say, he's, he's teaching ghosts. I'm not teaching ghosts, it's like ghost busting, like the movie, right? So there's some, there's some places where you go around and it's creepy at night on those back roads where the Spanish moss is hanging down, and you, you turn off the lights, and all of a sudden there are these eyes that are up there. It's like, oh, right? It's, 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 it's scary. So we do that. Well, two years ago, when we were down there, the little cousins, uh, Paul and Mac, the two little boys, decided they wanted to do their first experience with ghost busting. And I didn't know about it. Like, I, was, I don't know if they're ready for this. And they insisted, we're ready. We want to go ghost busting. So we went down and got into my uh, sister's vehicle, and I think it was, I could have been, I don't remember. So we got into the vehicle, and I said, before we go, I need to tell you what you're going to see. When we're driving through the marshes of Edisto, many years ago, and this is so cliche, many years ago, there was a revolutionary soldier, and he, was, he had his head shot off by a cannon, and he walks through the marshes at night looking for his head on a full moon like tonight. Paul immediately had kind of a meltdown. <laughs> he, he said, is this true? Is that true? Is that true? No, no, I made it up. It's like setting the mood for our drive. It's a ghost story, right? So we're going to ghost. I'm, I'm telling you a ghost story. Is it true? No, it's not true. None of it's true. I just made it up on the spot. Mama, is it true? It's not true. It's not true. It, it, we, he, Daddy made it up. He was trying to like make this kind of a scary ride. We're going ghost busting. So he wanted to set it up. So we start driving. He's like, is that a ghost? No, that's your Uncle Chris. That's Uncle Chris. It's not a ghost. And everything, like he's, he's got his legs tucked up in the minivan, and he's looking out. What is that? What is that? It's, it's a sign for a gas station. It's nothing. It's nothing, right? So he's freaking out. We've never been back. Okay, just saying. Now, here's the, here's the really fascinating thing for me. If I had told him that we were going for candy, that would have been a very different ride, right? If, I, if I'd said, hey, Paul, we're going to go for candy, he would have said, we're going for candy? That's awesome. How much can I spend? How much candy? What kind of candy? Is that person going to get candy too? Are they going to get there ahead of us? Is that person going to get all the candy? Daddy, I love you, right? So <laughs> that would have been, the ride would have been completely different depending on the story that I told him. So before we even put the thing into drive and start taking off on this, this trip, he's already got this story, this this ghost story, this candy story, whatever, in place that's shaping what he's looking for, how he's looking for it, what he's expecting is going to happen on this trip, um, what he thinks the, what he thinks about his security and his safety on this trip, what his goal is for this. 
Like everything is shaped before he, we even get that thing in the drive and take off out of the driveway, right? We all do this. We have a ghost story. We have a candy story. We all live according to it, right? All of us have this. Several years ago, I heard an interview with Bono, of all people. And uh, Bono was talking about his life in, in Ireland, and he has this very uh, kind of modest home. You would expect somebody with all that money to have this really big home. And he was on like the Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey show talking about his little modest home in Ireland. And she said, but you have all this money, and you have homes here and here and here and here, but you have this little modest home in Ireland. Why? And this was his answer. He said, well, if you, if you live in the... I'm not going to try an Irish accent, but if you live in the United States and you see a person with a big house up on a hill you say to yourself, yeah, one, one of these days, I'm going to have a house just like that. He said, if you live in Ireland, you see a guy with that kind of a house, with that kind of money up on a hill, and you say, yeah, one of these days, I'm going to get that guy, right? So <laughs> it's, a, it's a completely different story about success and money and people, right? We all have these stories that we tell ourselves, and do you know what is going on when we enter into the world that way? faith. That's what faith is. Faith is not this compartmentalized part of your life that you can pull out at will and kind of like show people, here's what I believe. Now I'm going to put it back. That's not what it is. What faith is, is the way you see and experience every part of the world around you. That's really what you believe. When you go everywhere you go, everything you see, everything that you interact with, you're interacting with it based on what you believe about the world. And that is a huge part of what Paul is talking about when he says this to Peter. And the others, he said, um, verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. He's saying, you don't believe this because when you believe the gospel, there is a trajectory that is set for you of a certain kind of behavior if you believe that that is true, right? If you believe this is true, your life is going to look this way. And if it doesn't look this way, then you're actually believing something else and heading off in a different direction, right? So that's what we're talking about tonight is believing this and it really affecting and impacting your life. And, and, and here in this passage, he's talking about believing the gospel, the good news. That's really what the word gospel means. I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. It simply means good news, but it, it, it's really the ultimate good news because it has to do with ultimate reality and it has to do with God in the world. The Bible's quite clear on this. None of us has lived out the, the love and the benevolence and the, the community productive lives that we ought. In fact, the good things that we ought to have done, we've refrained from doing, and the harmful things that we should never have done, we've pursued. And the Bible says that we're all really self-absorbed at our core, and the Bible calls this condition sin. And it means that we do things without regard for other people or what's going on, and it, and it ends up having a net negative effect on the world, right? And it doesn't matter if it's the sins of liberalism or the sins of conservatism. We all have this going on in our lives, right? Now, when the Bible is talking about salvation and coming to faith in Jesus, God is quite clear. When a person comes to him, they are saved, their past sins, or they're, trying, they're getting into God's presence, and their past sins are, are, need to be dealt with, right? And then they're in God's presence. We're going we're to continue this in a second. 
But then for me, I've been a Christian for 30, 35 years, something like that. And I still have problems in my life. I'm not the same person I was, but I still have problems in my life. And what the Bible says is because my life has had a negative impact on the people around me, there's a debt that I owe to God and to the world, one that I can't pay. But God, because I believe, wants me in. His family wants me in. His life wants me to be with him forever. And this is where the gospel becomes utterly and completely important because the gospel is the way that God has dealt with my past sins. The gospel is the way that God has dealt with my present sins, is dealing with them. And the gospel is also the way that I am, for the rest of eternity, able to enter into his presence. And what God is saying in this passage and in the gospel is, It's not based on anything Stephen Speaks ever does. It's based on something that he would do for me. It's not up to me. God loved me so much that he did what I could never do. He got me in. Uh, One of the REF campus ministers used this illustration. You can tell it's not one of my illustrations because it's a basketball illustration and it's not a Disney illustration, but here we go, okay? I didn't know this until I read this today. Uh, I'm not familiar with this name, and probably none of you will be either. Have any of you ever heard of Dickie Simpkins? Anybody ever heard of Dickie Simpkins? Anybody? See? We're on the same page. It's good. Okay. Uh, He's unknown to probably all of us, but he has actually had more NBA championships than most of the megastars. Uh, The example he used was Charles Barkley. I looked it up. He's tied. This guy, Dickie Simpkins, is tied with LeBron James for the most championships, right? It's kind of an interesting thing. He's won the NBA championship three times. Nobody's ever heard of him. And here's part of why you've never heard of him. He won all three with the Chicago Bulls in 1996 to 98. In 1996 and 97, the whole series, like the the, uh, playoffs and and the entire playoff run, he scored zero points. (laughs) He had zero rebounds, zero assists, zero blocks, zero steals during the entire time. And the reason... He had zero in all these categories is because he played for zero minutes. He sat the bench the entire playoff series, and at the end of the time, he got the same championship ring as Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen. It's the same cut, the same quality, the same design as the rest of them. So when he's on the record books, he's a champion, but he never did anything, Right? This is justification. You didn't do anything. Jesus has done everything. And he's given you the ring. He's given you the robes. He's given you the righteousness. He's given you his perfect life. And the Bible says that Jesus did two things, right? First thing is the Bible says he took all the debt you owed for your past life and your present life and all the debt you will accrue for the future because you have a net negative effect because of sin in your life and some people's lives. He took all of those on himself and he paid for them. The second thing that the Bible says he did is he lived a perfect life and then he gave that to the Father and said, treat him, treat her as if they've done everything that I did. Everything. So when the Father sees us and welcomes us into his presence, he doesn't welcome us as the person who screwed up. He welcomes us as Christ himself into his presence so that we can approach boldly into God's presence this way. And this is the baseline of the gospel. There's more to it, but this is the entrance point to when we enter into God's presence, we are saved. And what he's showing us over and over again is it's not about what we do for Jesus, 
But it's accepting what Jesus has done for us that makes us right with God. I believe him. I trust him. God has really done this. And it's not up to me at all. It's a free gift. And I'm here simply because of God's grace. And Peter rec- and Paul recognized this. And so he confronted Peter, another apostle, another leader in the church, because he, Peter and the others were invalidating the work of Jesus and saying Jesus' work is not enough. There's still stuff you have to do in order to be right with God. And they're saying, no, Jesus was enough. Let me give you a little background as we step into this. Paul refers in this passage to uh, the circumcision group. Uh, He says at the end of verse 12, he talks about people who belong to the circumcision group. These were first century Palestinian Jews who had become Christians, right? And so they really did believe that Jesus was the only way that a person could be saved along with having to do certain things to prove that you were worthy to be uh, forgiven, worthy to be accepted, including specifically being circumcised, which is why they're called the circumcision group. The Gentiles mentioned here are not Jewish. It's ethnically, they're other things. They're Greek, they're Roman, they're from all over the world. They're just simply not Jews, and they're not circumcised. They didn't grow up with a Jewish heritage. They didn't grow up with a Jewish background. What they had heard was, yes, Jesus is, was a Jewish person who is actually God's gift to the whole world. He was the Jewish Messiah for the whole world, the way that God brought him in. And all the Jewish Old Testament was about preparing the Jews to be able to explain to the world what Jesus had done for the world. And now that Jesus had come, those Old Testament ceremonial laws were all fulfilled and didn't need to be kept anymore. The only way that a person, the only thing a person needed to do was to believe and trust Jesus. But these Jewish Christians who saw themselves as the elite treated the Gentile Christians with contempt and, and saw them as dirty, as lesser, and they did not want to spend time with them in any way. And they even claimed probably that these, and even claimed that these Gentile Christians weren't really Christians because they hadn't done the things necessary to be right with God. So Paul came and publicly said to Peter, you are not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Now notice what he doesn't say. Paul does not say to Peter here, you're not acting according to what you believe. That's not what he says. What he says is you're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel because you actually right now believe something else. There's a different trajectory that's going off in your life, and it's being seen in the way that you are treating other people. See, Peter had this cultural candy story, this cultural ghost story from his, from his youth. He was born into a very Jewish culture that taught you had to keep these laws to be acceptable to God. You have to keep the laws. And so when Peter is hearing this group of Jews coming in and saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to keep these laws... It felt right. All the spiritual muscle memory kicked in from his cultural ghost story, from his cultural candy story, and all of a sudden, it felt right, and he easily slipped back into the same mistakes that other people around him were making. It was a story he had heard. Now, on paper, if pressed, he would probably have said, sure, absolutely, the only way to be right with God is through Jesus. But at this moment, in the way that he was treating these Gentile Christians, it showed that he was... Uh, being influenced by something else. The assumptions of this Jewish story in his head were so strong because of his youth. The pressure to conform 
the subtle and not so subtle arrogant critique of these Gentile Christians was just powerful for him. And you and I step into the world just like Peter all of the time. We have a story. We have a cultural story that you're born with, and you don't know you're born with it. People in the United States don't think they have a cultural story because that's part of our cultural story. Part of our cultural story is I made these decisions for myself. But do you understand that all of us think that because that's part of our cultural story? We believe that. It's, it's part of what goes up. It feels right to us, right? It feels right in our culture for people to think, as long as I'm not religious, I don't have a story. But we all have a story. And a lot of times our doubts and suspicions about God are based on our cultural story. And if you're a Christian in this room, where you find yourself disobedient to God, right? Where the Bible says you're supposed to do something, but you don't do it, you're, you're heading off in other directions. It's probably because of this cultural story that's at work inside of you. We don't have time to talk in detail about that cultural story, um, but it's intermixed, not just with your culture, like American culture, but Southern culture, white culture, right? middle-class culture, all of these things. And it's easy to deny that until you walk into a room. And then when you walk into a room, all of a sudden the story goes up and you're looking at everybody through that filter, right? We're, we're looking at people, we're, we're, we're asking questions like, is this person safe or is this person a threat? And you judge it based on clothes, you, you judge it based on skin color, you judge it based on a lot of different things. We're asking questions like, who do you pick, where, how do you pick where you sit? Right? Who can you trust? Who should you avoid? How will black people treat you? How will international people treat you? How will people in Greek life treat you? Who is worth getting to know? Who are the deplorables? Right? Because we all have them. That we think, you know, somehow this person is someone to avoid. Right? So we relate to people according to hidden values, hidden beliefs, underlying religious superiority, underlying racism, underlying classism. We all do this. None of us is immune. I'm not immune. My wife is not immune. And she told me I could tell this story. So, and we love you. Okay. When Catherine was, uh, when, when Rebecca was pregnant with Catherine a long, long time ago, uh, they had just built the, the Bilo. Y'all ever shop at Bilo? We remember when that thing was built. And so we were in Bilo and we were walking around the store. And uh, as Rebecca's pushing the buggy, and she's, she is great with child, she's pushing the buggy along. And at this point, uh, she notices that there are these two guys, like probably in their 20s, something like that. Uh, one guy is, he's, he's wiry, just muscly. He's got, he's got tats up and down his arms. He's got stringy hair, uh, ragged clothes. You know, he's got boots. There, the shoes aren't tied. And he's, he's walking around. And, and they keep looking at Rebecca. And she's walking, you know, doing the cart. And she's feeling uncomfortable because... You know, it's one of those things where you go down the aisle and then they're going down the aisle and you, pa- you see each other like, oh, and you pass. And every time he's looking at her and he actually points at her one time and whispers something to his buddy. And so Rebecca's starting to get unnerved by this. Kind of like, oh my goodness, these freaky people see me. I feel uncomfortable. Look at the way they look. Look at the way they dress. They're all sweaty and grimy. Why are they in Bilo of all places? And so finally... We get up to the checkout line, and, you know, I'm the oblivious husband, like, oh, okay. 
Um, and she actually, I think, at one point whispered, whispered to me, these guys keep looking at me. I really feel uncomfortable. And guess who got in line right behind us? guy with the stringy hair, and he comes walking up, and he says, excuse me, can I interrupt you for just a second? He said, how far along are you? And Rebecca said, and he said, my wife's at home, and I've been telling my buddy that I think my wife and you are about the same, have the, at the same place, and we're about to have a baby, and I'm so excited about it, I can't stand it. <laughs> and at this point, Rebecca and I, Rebecca's like, I am a horrible person. I'm a horrible person. (laughs) Right? But we all do this. You judge people based on their external appearance. You judge people from all sorts of things that have no basis in reality. And when we do that, we're getting off track from the gospel and loving people. See, this this is a beautiful thing about the gospel. The gospel is giving us uh, really different it gives us a different story that enables us to love anyone. Enables us to love anyone. I was reading today, there's a great book. It's called Heal Us, Emmanuel. It's a collection of essays by mainly PCA pastors about race relations. And uh, one of them, Howard Brown, who was a, a Clemson student years and years ago, um, he's a pastor in Charlotte. He's from Charleston. And his father it was a member of the sister church to the AME church where the shooting took place. Um, was that last summer? And, and he was talking about this, and he was talking about the forgiveness that he saw this church able to extend to this person who would come in and in a race-related violence shot and killed beloved people. And they extended grace and forgiveness and loved him. And the world stood back and, and wondered, why? And they all said it was because of Jesus. Jesus gives us the ability and power to forgive because we recognize that we have been the recipients of this kind of grace. I've been the recipient of this kind of forgiveness from God, my Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit dwells in me, and He chooses to live in someone who is as grimy and gross as I am because He loves me. And we see Jesus doing things in the gospel that blow our minds when we think about how much love there is in in His heart. One of my favorite stories is the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a small uh, tax collector, and he is hated in his hometown. And the reason he's hated in his hometown, because if you were a tax collector in Judea back in the first century, it meant that you had betrayed your people. It meant that you, had, you were uh, aligned with the Romans. It meant that you had rejected your religious roots. It meant that you are extorting your neighbors because that's what tax collectors did and they were wealthy, right? So he was hated by the community. He was the worst of the worst as far as everybody was concerned. But Jesus is preaching in the area and the word goes around that Jesus is going to be in their town that day. And Zacchaeus, just like everybody else, is curious about this Jesus fella. So Zacchaeus goes and he can't see over the crowd and you can just see people, you know, you can just imagine people going shoulder to shoulder when he's trying to get through to look and see. They don't want him to... You of all people are not welcome here. So Zacchaeus does the only thing he can do to be able to get a view of Jesus. He climbs up in a tree. And when he climbs up in the tree, two things happen. Number one, he gets himself in full view of Jesus. He can see Jesus, and Jesus can see him. Second thing happens. Everybody else 
can see Zacchaeus. When Jesus walks over to Zacchaeus, knowing that this village hates this man, and Jesus says to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today for dinner, which is a huge deal. Because in this passage, Peter and the, the, Peter and the Judaizers, like the, the circumcision, they won't even eat with the Gentiles because it makes them unclean. And here's the worst of the worst in this town. And Jesus makes a beeline for this man. Zacchaeus climbs down. His life has changed. And Jesus says, I tell you, today salvation has come to this man's house. Right? That's the love of Jesus. That's the love of the Savior. And he's calling us as people in whom his spirit dwells, who have received that kind of forgiveness, who have received that kind of grace from him, to love the people around us in a very similar way. And and love is not really just this abstract, nebulous thing that we have for a faceless humanity, like abstract feelings. It's really nitty-gritty because people can be hard to be around, right? I'm one of them, right? People who are different from you especially can be really hard to be around. They drive differently. They have different sensibilities about time. Sometimes because of the food they eat, they smell different, and Americans hate those kind of smells, right? And so loving people who are not like us actually requires us getting over ourselves because one of the goals of the gospel, the big picture gospel, is not just to get you saved, but to get you united, to have a united humanity. People from every tribe and tongue and language and people group, all with something bigger that unites us. In the world right now, we're never going to unite, right? We're not going to unite because we all have our own cultural belief system, our own cultural story. There's no larger culture, there's no larger story that's uniting us, but the gospel gives us that story because we have a savior for the world, not just for the Jews and not just for the Christians, but for the whole world. And what that means is anybody from all over the world who comes to believe in Jesus is saved from any nation, from any tribe, from any language, any people group. And they're all there for one reason. Jesus. And our cultures will be different. There will be Ethiopian food in the new earth. There will be Chinese food in the new earth. There will be, I will be uh, making my grilled chicken in the new earth. We're going to have all cultural representations there in the new earth. And it's going to be fantastic. And it will all be to the glory and praise of Jesus. And we'll all be there for one reason. Jesus has given us the championship ring. And anybody who believes in him receives that and enters in. Period. I actually got a picture of this several years ago while I was in seminary. I wish that I got a better picture of it sometimes at church. Uh, but I got a picture at a friend's house. Uh, their, their names were Jared and Mimi. And Jared and Mimi uh, knew all kinds of people throughout St. Louis. And one day they decided to throw a party. And so they invited all of their friends And their friends were made up of different socioeconomic groups, different races, different nationalities, even different beliefs. And so we were all there having a party at Jared and Mimi's. People I would never have chosen to hang out with because they're not like me. But the reason I was there was because of Jared and Mimi. And Jared and Mimi said, I want all of my friends to be friends with each other. And so we played croquet. And we got massages on Jared's massage chair. Um, And we had a great time together. And it was a picture of what God intends. Can I challenge you? 
I hardly ever challenge you. I'll bring a lot of comfort. Here's a challenge for this week. For us to act in line with the truth of the gospel. When you walk into a classroom, when you walk into a new setting, don't immediately say, I'm looking for the safe person. Look for the person who's not like you, who's very different. Pray and say, Lord, I'm going to go over and introduce myself to that person and listen and get to know them and love them and invite them into my life. Does this sound good? That's a, that is a picture of godliness, of living out the gospel. Let me pray for us. The challenge is scary for us, Father. We live in a polarized society. We're afraid. So we pray that you would help us, that you would help us to trust you, to trust your providential leading, to, pressure, to trust your Spirit's presence with us, to trust your safety, security. And we pray simply that you would enable us to love people well, just as you've loved us. Would you do this? We pray you would. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.